Hello, you're listening to Shadow Talk. I'm your host, Victoria Austin. And in this episode, we're going to dive into the latest threat intelligence stories that are impacting the industry. So joining me in the London office, we have Adam Cook and Jamie Collier. Hello. Hello. Hello again. Hi. Very good to have you. How's everyone doing today? Very good. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Coping, getting through it. Perfect. Well, yeah. So one of the first things we wanted to talk about on this episode is a subject that Adam kind of is really obsessed with and I actually wanted to bring this up um, and he didn't have to nudge me to, d- to discuss this but this week the UK's National Cyber Security Centre published a b- report advising cus- uh, not customers but more consumers on how to best protect security cameras and baby monitors for att- from attack so yeah this guidance comes as like a series of cases which Adam's kind of going to dive into um, these cases are quite rare, but it does tell a much broader story. So I kind of hand this over to you, Adam. Obsessed is a strong word, by the way. I have, w- I have one IoT-based rant, and then I'm labelled as the IoT man. Anyway, I- no. IoT guru. You're right, you're right. <laughs> I'm not technically minded to it at all either. Um, but yeah, I mean, so we've actually discussed the subject IoT devices on the podcast for uh, a few months mm-hmm. now. And I think just before December, there were cases such as Ring Doorbell, which is a security camera, which Mm -hmm. um, had a a few security flaws. So I know listeners may, some listeners may have heard us, but let's just recap those cases. Yeah. So like you say, we've spoken numerous times on the podcast in the last six months or so, you know, how about the vulnerabilities in smart devices are potentially providing threat actors with opportunities for compromise. That's the, the broad overview of what we've been discussing. And these vulnerabilities are in everything from home security systems and smart hubs to wearable devices like smartwatches and even in rarer cases, pet feeders. So a lot of the reporting often suggests that these vulnerabilities uh, uh, exist and could be exploited by would-be hackers. But more and more instances are now cropping up whereby compromise has actually occurred. Much of what we hear around mitigation, which we'll come to in a second when we touch on what NCSC are advising, is centered on changing default passwords for such things like Wi-Fi, home routers and other devices. And back in January, reporting suggested that around 500,000 telnet credentials for Wi-Fi routers and IoT devices had been published to a hacking forum. So this is the main area of compromise that we're concerned about, data breaches following the exposure of credentials for these devices. But there is also the creepier side to it in that it can often or has the ability to impact user privacy. So you've got things like location data, which is a big thing that uh, was actually being exposed by smartwatches that were being used by school children in China not long ago. Then you had things like the Xiaomi home cameras that were exposing still images from inside users' homes uh, shortly after that. And then we touched on the story uh, that you just mentioned there on the ring cameras and speaker systems that in one specific case, one report suggested that uh, this system had been hacked. They do do cameras for outside, but they also do internal Mm -hmm. systems as well. And this had been used to... This has been used by the hacker to communicate with an eight-year-old that was living at the property. So he had, he was like playing like loud music. He said he was Father Christmas and he was like, you know, just saying loads of horrible things to us. So that's like the darker side to this thing in terms of impacting on people's privacy. Yeah, I think that's just a bit like, I mean, when you're that young as well, you don't know what's happening. And I think it's just 
as you said, the dark side. Yeah. Uh, kind of brings chills to me. But yeah, so I think, so those are the cases we've just run through. But now that the, like a national body has come out and mm-hmm. provided guidance, um, which I think is, is, is great from mm-hmm. that side. But it's a shame that it's not coming from the manufacturers. Like they should be baking that security practice into the product. And I, this is definitely something I've mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, we've discussed in the past that, you know, every product, you know, it's code in the end. You know, it, yep. It's going to have some flaws. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's just a shame that the manufacturers aren't getting um, there first. 100%. Yeah, I think you know, us and the wider security community is starting to sound like a broken record when it comes to that kind of stuff now. Uh, It's something that we read about all the time, especially when security commentators are having their say on these instances or like, um, you know, the reporting around uh, these vulnerabilities in in these devices. The problem they often have is that it's the rush to market and competition between providers that, often deprioritizes the security elements of the devices. So that contributes to what is being referred to as the inherently insecure nature of IOD, IoT devices, sorry, which is fueling the occurrence of all these stories, right? And that's why we keep talking about it. Yeah, and it's just ironic that like the security cameras are themselves insecure. Yeah. Um, I think um, one thing that's really important here, actually, is it really kind of highlights the way that uh, the threat models that we use in cybersecurity are often quite limited and quite constrained. So, you know, we talk about the kind of the creepy aspects, whether that's children getting impacted. One thing that's really important uh, with IoT, and you see a lot, is actually how it kind of facilitates, you know, gender-based domestic abuse. Uh, you've had people like Leonor Tanza talking about um, how it can kind of, you know, uh, affect that kind of issue. Uh, Eva Galpin talking about stalkerware. Um, and often when we kind of talk about children, uh, you know, gender abuse, et cetera, those aren't things that we kind of would typically consider when we talk about cybersecurity, when we're talking about you know, state-based threats, cyber criminals, and actually a lot of these really important issues to do with privacy and abuse kind of fall through the cracks. Uh, absolutely. Totally agree on that one. And then if we think about, so when I was reading the kind of report on the website, or the piece of guidance, it said um, on the left-hand column, it said this report is, t- is a target audience for individuals and families. Um, that's great, but do we actually think these individuals and families are going to be reading this piece of advice? Like, how is that information going to get um, uh, sent out to these people? Well, the, the good thing is that when uh, governing bodies like the NCSC touch on these things, it usually gets picked up by mainstream media sources so the first i saw of this was just my um my routine like daily check in the morning when i sit down at my desk just have a bit of browse of the news um and it popped up on sky news and then i subsequently saw that it was also being picked up by the bbc so hopefully it's more likely to reach that target audience because when the ncsc comes out and publishes reports or publishes guidance like this usually those mainstream media sources will will take note of it and you know it will hopefully filter through because often these stories when we've been talking about it we're privy to it because we're watching news agencies or security commentators that are within that sector right because this is this is what we do day, day to day um which often wouldn't filter through but when you've got people at the ncsc doing it hopefully then more more mainstream media sources pick it up true yeah i'm just i'm trying to think if that would make me reconsider buying a product like that but i am not really the target audience am i so well you could 
that that leads quite nicely into the actual guidance itself because it's not like they're not trying to scaremonger here. They're just saying that, you know, by and by, if you do a few simple things like change the default password, which is something that, you know, people have been hailing for um, Wi-Fi routers themselves. But, you know, these these things are just in the same ballpark, right? Yeah. If you, the, the guidance itself is user-friendly for the non-security-minded community that are using these products. So it's not like don't buy or use these products in your home. Because I think the interesting thing is, is that the fact is that people are going to show, there's going to be an increasing demand for this kind of technology, right? No matter what anyone says, people want their phone to connect to their house, that then connects to their car, that they can then look at their watch. That's what, that's just the world that we're living yeah, in. Yeah, right? everything is going to be seamless and integrated. Exactly. So it's, the likelihood is that the average user hasn't even considered these types of threats. But I suppose the good thing about us, and especially for people like me, he said obsession at the start, but is the people that have been talking about these things for a while and it's been, hasn't been reaching those average users that aren't, you know, really security minded. These kind of things, these, uh, these initiatives and this guidance from the NCSC will hopefully spread it around. Absolutely. And it was one of the whole points of the NCSC being established, right? So it uh, grew out of GCHQ, which is a covert signals intelligence agency. The whole point of the NCSC being a separate entity was to have that kind of public communication, uh, make cybersecurity more accessible. So, you know, I think you're seeing this now. And uh, as you say, you'd hope that it's followed through with uh, more kind of awareness campaigns uh, aimed at the public. Yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. Well, um, if anyone, I know it's quite far away, but if anyone's thinking about a Christmas present or a birthday present, maybe they'd have to reconsider an IoT device. You're throwing some clues out there for <laughs> any family members listening. <laughs> yeah. Um, so just one last thing, I guess, on this, but um, I think it says quite a lot that the NCSC has published this piece of guidance. I, I mean, you said, Jamie, that they are currently trying to make this sort of guidance more accessi- accessible. But um, is this normal for uh, for things go with these types of products? I think it's great. I think the points that we just touched on there, you know, it really shows the need for it. Um, you know, how long has the security industry been talking about this stuff without any, any real, like, recognition or acknowledgement from the wider public? Um, so, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm all for it. Big nice. fan. means that I can stop banging on about it without anyone actually listening to me. It's good. (laughs) (laughs) Nice one. So moving on to the next story, this involves um, Android malware that can steal 2FA codes from a Google Authenticator app. So yeah, this week, security researchers uh, discovered that an Android malware strain can extract a one-time password generated through the Google Authenticator. And I think it is actually worth um, explaining what a Google Authenticator is. So typically you'll have like a normal password to get into your um, an account, but then there are certain measures, so it's an extra layer, so it's called multi-factor um, authentication. Yeah, there are different forms of 2FA. There's smart cards, SMS tokens, um, there's time-based one-time passwords, OTPs, uh, such as a au- Google Authenticator app. And then there's another one, which is a universal second factor. I think... Um, in terms of popularity, I would say that maybe Google Authenticator is maybe more widely used or more commonly known. But in this case, um, what we or what security researchers have found is that they targeted one form of multi-factor authentication 
and um, that was a Google app. So yeah, I thought we could touch in what yeah what was the malware strain capable of? Yeah, so it was pretty simple in terms of it. You know, the Cerebus Banking Trojan has been around for a while, and what it does here is it you know effectively uh, just uh, takes the code, uh, and that would allow a threat actor to you know gain access to an individual's account if they implemented uh, multi-factor authentication. So I think the first thing to say here is that multi-factor authentication is really important and, uh, you know, we should all be integrating it when we can. Uh, it's much better than nothing. So even if, you, if you're concerned about the risks uh, to multi-factor authentication, um, it's, it's something that can, you know, really kind of uh, protect you, uh, improve your security. But I think the really important thing that we kind of saw here is, you know, we saw this incident, we thought it's interesting, you know, MFA code being obtained, we kind of move on to the next story. But if you actually zoom out uh, for a bit and you look at what's been going on in the last year or two, uh, there's been a lot of these sorts of attacks, uh, you know, taking place in isolation, uh, a lot of kind of malware kind of starting to integrate this. So there's actually, um, a, you know, it's quite active in terms of threat actors uh, targeting MFA codes, but there's actually quite a complex landscape. And what I mean by that is there's different, tactics, different kind of attack vectors being used to obtain these MFA codes. So we see mobile malware, for instance, we see fake apps uh, obtaining them, we see kind of Trojans, as just discussed, we might see even a, a enhanced spear phishing. So that would be where, you know, you uh, prompted to enter your login codes, and then uh, you would be then given uh, or requested to enter your MFA code in real time. Yeah, there was another one as well. So uh, last year, um, the Photon Research team published a paper called 2FA in Review, and they actually tested a, another type of tool that could get around uh, 2FA, and that was the Marina tool, which uh, effectively uses a proxy to try and um, capture uh, credentials. So the, the end user would be assuming that they're logging into their Google or Gmail account, but in reality, it's using a, a proxy email uh, URL. So yeah, that's just another tool to build on what you just said. Yeah, and I think I think the critical thing is uh, for organisations to understand that MFA isn't maybe the silver bullet that they once thought, right? That it, a yes, of course, it does improve security a huge amount, uh, drastically reduces the likelihood uh, that you're going to compromise your login credentials. But uh, it's still important to actually manage that process, make sure that you are securing it, you're understanding the threat landscape and how MFA codes are you know, potentially obtained, etc. I think the other thing is, you know, we've kind of touched on this about the different types of MFA. And yes, they're not all created equal, right? There's there's trade-offs and we all kind of know that the weaknesses in SS7 make SMS codes quite easy to potentially intercept, for example. But there's also those trade-offs. So there's, you know, if we think of, say, a security key, probably the, what we would consider the most secure, but it's probably the, the most hard to implement. And especially at scale, if you've got lots and lots of users, potentially more uh, appropriate in within an organization for, for employees. So I think it's really important to see those trade-offs uh, and understand when you should use each one. You know, there's still legitimate times where you might want to use an SMS code if you're trying to do something at scale with uh, individuals that you know, uh, aren't using your service regularly and might not want to set up an authenticator code app. Yeah, I think it also comes back to the points we just discussed in the former subject when we talk about how everything or people these days want products seamless and integrated into their day to day lives. And 2FA might be seen as an inconvenience if they have to have um, like a card to carry around or, or a chip in like a uh, token. Token. Yes, thank you. That is the word. Um, so, yeah, the app, I guess, would be having it all in one place, which might make it easier. And just goes back to your point, not all of them are created equal. Some are more uh, more secure or more robust than others. Um, and in this example that we're kind of talking about, OTP 
may not be the strongest of the lot that are available, but there are still other um, 2FA uh, tools out there that we can use. It's just a case of the end user, again, learning which one's best for them and easiest to adopt. Yeah, and in, within the situation, right, so it's easy for us as a security community that take this stuff seriously to be very snobby about this and say, you know, we should be using... Uh, security keys if not maybe authenticated codes but never sms but actually you know there's a range of options and some are you know better suited for certain situations others uh, for different sort of contexts. so i think that that's really important having said that um i think one thing we will see is uh mfa attacks or you know operations that attempt to obtain mfa codes really hit the mainstream in the next 12 months so we've started to see these quite isolated campaigns you know right now we're talking about a single uh, banking trojan doing it I think what we'll start to see is, you know, becoming integrated into a lot of different banking Trojans and uh, malware. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, all these Trojans are often competing on the similar, you know, similar marketplaces. They're all trying to kind of stand out when one has this kind of, uh, you know, capability, uh, the others are probably going to step up. So I think as much as we kind of want to say, you know, MFA is really good and improves things uh, and it's better than nothing, even a weak one. Actually, what we also want to be aware of is that you know, uh, more and more threat actors are probably going to be targeting MFA codes, which does kind of, you know, highlight the need to also be thinking about those more secure options. Yeah, exactly. Two-factor, I guess, just creates that extra layer of security, but it just adds the hurdle for the cyber criminals or attackers to kind of overcome. So, um, yeah, as as like as many other things, they'll probably find new ways and new techniques to bypass. So, yeah, I think that um, that's the case that occurred with um, a banking Trojan, but more broadly, um, some food for thought around uh, 2FA. Next, we have a, a ransomware campaign affecting a legal services provider called EPIC. So in this case, uh, it was identified that a ransomware attack had kind of brought this legal service to a standstill. Is that correct, Jamie? Yeah, so it actually affected uh, you know, 80 global offices, uh, you know, so this co- uh, company's kind of based around the world, affected all of their kind of locations. Um, so, you know, it can be really disruptive. Uh, the company did state that they didn't see any evidence that data had been stolen. So while we've talked a lot at the podcast, I think everyone's probably sick to death of talking about that, you know, that trend of ransomware threat actors also threatening to publish data. So do we know what ransomware was used in this case? Yeah, so it was the Riot ransomware variant. Uh, we've seen it you know, relatively active in late 2019, cropping up again in 2020. So you know, I think it's kind of same old, same old. But what we do know is that it remains active, remains a threat to organisations. We have actually discussed ransomware quite uh, a lot on this podcast, among other things. But in this case, I thought it was quite unusual to target a legal services provider. Is this something that we've seen before? Well, I think what we're seeing with ransomware, if anything, is that it's it's quite kind of sector agnostic. It will go after certain sectors, and we've you know we've talked before about the trend of uh, you know low level kind of city councils and local governments being targeted. But I think unlike some other attacks, you know, if you're kind of interested in uh, data theft and information theft, you know, you might be quite focused on certain sectors that have valuable IP. I think with ransomware, it's about disrupting operations. So it, if you can kind of disrupt any organization. Um, you know, you, you have that chance of a payout, right, as a threat actor. Uh, what we've seen in the past is maybe that kind of tendency to go after systems that are really deemed critical. So, you know, if, if the si- system is kind of critical, if it's in a sector that's really important, let's say a critical infrastructure, for example, uh, it becomes more important to get those systems up and running uh, really quickly. But, you know, saying that, I think global, you know, big, large uh, global legal firms, so, you know, it's going to be important for them to get their systems up and running. So I think that's, th- that's really the question rather than the sector. I think there was one last year where like a legal services provider got hit and 
like Jamie says, the crippling nature of that is that lawyers are prepping cases that they can't access documents for and, course, and yeah. such like that. So I think as well of the like earlier this year, Maze is another ransomware that's like being used in the um, uh, in the in the landscape that Jamie was referring to earlier. So I think there is a, a tendency to have the legal sector or, or law firms up there on the on the list of priorities for targeting. I mean, there is quite an interesting point, right, where we don't actually hear, compared to other industries, we don't hear a huge amount about the legal sector. Mm. So, you know, we do hear a lot about banks being targeted. So uh, it could be a reporting issue. I think so. You know, I think a lot of those yeah. uh, organisations, you know, legal organisations are probably uh, pretty sophisticated in their cybersecurity posture. They're probably keeping a lot of this, uh, you know, pretty discreet when they can. Uh, as long as they're kind of, you know, uh, al aligning with kind of regulation, etc. But it is kind of quite interesting how we don't hear as much on the legal sector as, you know, you would, you think we would, you know, kind of hear quite a lot about them, right? Because, you know, big firms, a lot of valuable IP, etc. Yeah, exactly. No, I agree. Yeah, if you think about the data that these firms are, are holding, like, it's surprising that we don't hear more of it. Something to watch them. Mm -hmm. So, moving on, we then have... Um, Two very similar stories, and it did get us kind of thinking, like, are they, are they linked? But the first is related to Tesco. So first, Tesco Club Card announced or um, kind of warned that its 600,000 customers had um, sort of it kind of identified fraudulent activity. So it wanted to kind of just forewarn the customers, and then it, it reissued new, new Club Cards in that case. Um, that Yeah, that's quite interesting because I guess... Tesco had kind of got ahead of, of the news. It said that it had identified fraudulent activity. Do we know what they deemed as fraudulent activity in this case? Their internal systems, I think. Well, this is the quote from them. said that it uh, picked up some activity that they deemed to be potentially suspicious. And as a precautionary measure, they've taken this action to reissue 600,000 club cards. Which is good to see, right? I mean, it's nice to see, oh, um, yeah. you know, a, a firm that relies on the loyalty of its customers, specifically the ones who have loyalty cards with Tesco, to be like, hey guys, just so you know, we've picked up this. It might be nothing, but as a courtesy, we're going to reissue cards. And it might be that a few of them were compromised, right? So the, the story talks about how uh, credentials from other sites were used to access Tesco uh, accounts so you know there you would think maybe someone you know some users have kind of used the same passwords and emails on multiple different accounts uh, and then you know trying to kind of rede redeem those kind of club card vouchers so you know it's it's great to see you know if, if we don't know all the details but if that's happened on a small number of uh if we've referred to a small number of individuals it might be that tesco is able to understand you know which data breaches or you know where they might have got those passwords from who else might be impacted from this and actually, you know, let's cut this off at source uh, by, you know, resetting all of this. Yeah, absolutely. And then the other case is uh, Boots. So this is actually today. Boots um, announced it was suspending payments around its loyalty pay, uh, points in shops. So their uh, Boots Advantage card had uh, had been sort of compromised in this case. And so they were just reissuing um, Advantage cards. So, yeah, there are two very similar cases. It did kind of get me thinking are they using the same provider? I just, it wouldn't be the same provider in this case. I'm trying to think how, why do they look so similar? But I think maybe one thing to highlight here is, you know, both regard kind of loyalty points, right? Or loyalty accounts of some sort, whether that's club cards, uh, loyalty schemes, etc. 
And I think maybe one thing uh, that individuals will do is that they won't take the security on these accounts as seriously. So if you're thinking of the password for your banking app, you know your mobile phone you probably take that quite seriously you you know uh, have quite a complex password when it comes to these accounts they're a bit more far away you know you're creating them you're in a hurry you're not kind of thinking as much about what the password is you probably don't think it's as important because it's just some club card points it's just some loyalty scheme um, and that, that might increase the likelihood that you're going to reuse the same password yeah typical threat vector for the retail sector as well um, you know having had first-hand experience with our searchlights all and some of the stuff that we pick up loyalty points are hotcakes in um for four four threat actors targeting that industry you know you can not only use that for your own fraudulent purposes you can collate a database of it and sell it on for other people that might want to pop them or just use it for wider phishing and scam activity to get in touch with the users. Yeah, and also I think we tend to forget that these loyalty cards are in itself a currency and a value. Absolutely. Like Tesco club card points, it's I think 100 points per pound that you spend. So yeah, just because it's not real cash doesn't mean it doesn't have value. So. Yeah, and you see, you actually see, interestingly enough, you see quite a lot of stigma for say one, you know, password managers, right? And people deem them insecure, but actually, you know, they're really good and they're really good for this sort of stuff where you've got lots of different accounts. You're not using them too often. If you want to have those uh, secure passwords, having a password manager that generates, you know, complex passwords, much better than either using the same password or trying to hold a load of information in your head that's ultimately unrealistic. Yeah, there's this uh, piece of research that was produced by Google and Harris Poll last year. And in their research, they discovered that 50% of the cohort of users that they interviewed reused the same password. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah, that was that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that nugget. <laughs> Hopefully everyone might want No, it's, re- it's reflective though, right? Like <laughs> it was like crickets. No, no, no. It's reflective of, you know, wider trends. Like we only get people sitting up and, and taking note when the NCSE starts talking about smart homes and devices. We as a security community talk about this for ages beforehand. The cycle flows on, you know what I mean? And the fact that those stats are out there is still a concern for a lot of people that just aren't taking note or heed of any of this stuff that we're talking about. The other thing to kind of remember here, right, is as a Fred and Tell industry, we tend to be really interested in what's new. And that often means, you know, say this kind of MFA story we've talked about, it's often something a bit more sophisticated. We might be interested in some kind of new mitre attack tactic, for example. I think these stories actually just, you know, a useful reminder that uh, for a lot of people, that's not what security looks like. It's about, you know, really simple things. It's about uh, password management. It's about patching. Uh, and actually, you know, uh, the, the Fred Intel industry should kind of remember that. And, it, you know, it can be, play a role in kind of helping to educate people as well on these issues. Absolutely. Uh, so that is a roundup for everything in the news this week. Uh, this week, however, Digital Shadows did uh, publish a, blo- a blog around the dark web search engine Kilos. That can be found at resources.digitalshadows.com. So that's definitely worth a read if you're interested in that space. And then at the same time, you can also read the weekly InSum. And yeah, we touched on 2FA, but the weekly InSum does a really good deep dive into that. So lots of content to kind of um, to crack on with. So yeah, thank you very much all for listening. And also Adam and Jamie, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Victoria. Cheers, Victoria. Thanks.